Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. Coming up, the winter blues are real. And this year, the pandemic is with us as well. We'll hear from the American Psychological Association about getting through the next few months. Also, health care has been a major campaign issue. Next week, the future of the Affordable Care Act will be before the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll get the latest from Kaiser Health News and find out what this case means for Americans who rely on the ACA's protections for pre-existing conditions. First, we reflect on the latest surrounding the presidential election. Joining us on Zoom is Kevin J. McMahon. He's professor of political science at Trinity College in Hartford. Kevin, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Kevin, you're a political scientist. Uh, have you been refreshing your browser every few minutes to see what's the uh, latest? <clears throat> Definitely. I've been, I've been <laughs> doing it as I was waiting to join the show. <laughs> All right. So tell us, what is the latest? I understand Biden is uh, leading in Pennsylvania. There's a lot that we still don't know. Yeah, no, he's 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 pulled ahead in Pennsylvania. Uh, you probably know already that he he took the lead in Georgia. Uh, we'll know more about Arizona and Nevada uh, later in the day. That's the expectation, at least. Um, in fact, one of the uh, election news outlets, uh, Decision Desk HQ, has has recently called the race. Just called the race about a few moments ago. And so how do you talk about this particular election and what's been happening since Tuesday with your students, Kevin? Well, there's a number, you know, one, one I think, one interesting uh, aspect of the Trump candidacy is this, this idea of whether or not he was uh, trying to mobilize voters or convert voters, right? So oftentimes, if you're just a, a new observer to the scene, you would wonder why President Trump uh, was so aggressive in trying to turn to, to speak to his base, right? That typically, if we think about what happens in the primaries, primaries tend to be about being more conservative. You're conservative or conservative message if you're a Republican, and a more liberal message if you're a Democrat. And then when the general election comes, you try to, to moderate that. President Trump didn't do that, right? And he hasn't done that. He didn't do that in 2016 either. And the question becomes why? And it's really based on this idea that instead of appealing to a swing voter, you know, people we used to call NASCAR dads and soccer moms, that's not his strategy. His strategy is to turn out his people, right? To, to mobilize people who haven't voted in the past um, and to, to come out and, and vote for him. And it seems like he 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 did that certainly did that successfully in 2016 in a state like Pennsylvania, and he's he seemingly has done that again this year mm -hmm. in the state of Pennsylvania. However, two two main differences from 2016. One is Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden was was one of his arguments why he should be the Democratic nominee 
was that he would he would appeal to these um, white working class you know, voters in places like Pennsylvania who didn't have a college degree that Trump did so well with in 2016, that Biden would appeal to them, and he seemingly has. Um, and then secondly, that the, the third party vote, which while it was only 4% last time in the, in the state of Pennsylvania, this, this year was just over 1%. So that 3% has seemingly made, Biden won more of that, and that seemingly has, seemingly has made a difference. Uh, you know, we're still learning more about uh, the people that voted this time around. I saw in the Washington Post just the other day that Trump so far has f- at least four million more votes than he did in 2016. So that speaks to what you were saying, Kevin, about getting his base to turn out and to appeal to new voters. But also when we think about uh, the people he appealed to back in 2016, uh, white working class Americans who may not have college degrees, I think the latest was there are a lot of white college educated men that voted for Trump this time around? Yes, no, I mean, if you look at the breakdown of white voters, this is nationwide, uh, Trump won uh, every category. I mean, the meaning, so breaking it down, uh, college-educated uh, uh, women and, and non-college-educated women and the same breakdown with men, he won every one of those categories. So, you know, Biden's Biden, but what Biden did do was he was able to cut into the margins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ultimately he'll probably win this, the popular vote by about four or 5%. So he certainly cut into the margins and particularly in those, you know, so-called blue wall states of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Trump won each of those um, by a total of about 77,000 votes last time. And this year, you know, Biden's going to seemingly going to win all three and uh, some of them, none of them comfortably, you know, each probably only by one or two percent, but certainly better than than Trump won them in 2016. Again, you're hearing Kevin J. McMahon, professor of political science at Trinity College in Hartford, as we talk about the latest with this uh, presidential election. You know, when we think to uh, polls, what happened there, Kevin? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, part of the part of the answer is the fact that um, the way polls get reported is is not clear. I should say. Um, so, for example, if there's a poll that says, you know, Joe Biden, a national poll that said Joe Biden up 48 percent to Donald Trump forty five percent, right, with a, a margin of error of three percent. That gets reported as Joe Biden has a three-point lead, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, what it means is that Joe Biden's number will range between anywhere from 45% to 51%, and Donald Trump's number would range from anywhere from from 42% to 48%. So a a poll that says Joe Biden up by 3% with a plus-minus margin of error of three doesn't really say that he's ahead by that amount. It says that that's the range of what what they're hearing in the polls, right? Um, the other thing is, <clears throat> you know, obviously some polls were particularly bad. The Washington Post had, had a poll of uh, Biden up by 17 in Wisconsin. He'll probably only win that by about 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Donald Trump certainly highlighted that poll as being out of whack. He did that last night. Washington Post also had a poll, though, in Florida, uh, where they had Trump up 2%. Uh, 
and he'll he's right now he's ahead by about three percent. So that second poll was was right on, and and I do think the the just the number of polls we sort of you know we sort of uh, we look at that that overall figure, and again we just make a determination that 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 was uh, that's the right and you know that's the the real number that that Donald Trump is ahead or behind, um, and certainly the polls were wrong, and we'll have to. In, in some places, we'll have to look at that, but I think we'll probably find out that they were a little more right than than we initially thought on election night. Mm. You talked about uh, the popular vote again in this uh, election, and as we wait for results, uh, there are many Americans who wonder why we are sticking with the electoral uh, college. Uh, and I just wanted you to maybe refresh our our memories about why we have this system and maybe the arguments for and against it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the arguments for it are we just think of the the name of the country, right? The United States of America. That that when the country is formed, it's a collection of states. It's not it's not uh, a nation in the same way that we think of it today. Um, so so the sense is that a a candidate would have to appeal to to all parts of of the country, right? That you couldn't just focus your attention. At the in the big cities, um, certainly more so today than than at the the time of the founding, um, but, but that you had to have this broad message, um, and the arguments against it are obviously that, you know, the 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 way you get those electoral votes is simply by combining the number of senators. Every state gets two senators and the number of house members of the house. Uh, so a state like California, forty million people. Um, is going to be underrepresented re- represented proportionally than a state like Wyoming with about 500,000 people. So that's really, you know, votes in Wyoming are more powerful than votes in California. Mm. We're hearing from people who would like to see the Electoral College abolished. What would be the process? Well, it would it would take a constitutional amendment to abolish it fully, but you know there are other ways in which you might reform it. Probably the best two examples are the state of Nebraska and Maine. As you know, um, in Maine, you Maine and Nebraska have candidates win the congressional districts, so you can, for example, Donald Trump won Maine too, right? The second congressional district in Maine. So he got that one electoral vote. Biden won the other congressional district and he won the state. So he got uh, he he got the remaining Maine votes. The opposite happened in Nebraska. Biden won Nebraska too. Trump won the rest of the state. So there might be a way to to break up the state. So it's not just one chunk, right? If we think back to 2000, uh, the 2000 race, George W. Bush after the Supreme Court decision, won Florida by 537 votes, but he got all of the the state's Mm -hmm. electoral votes. So breaking it up might be an easier path to to reforming the Electoral College as opposed to a constitutional amendment. Constitutional amendments are are tricky to get to, to, you know, for them to be a part of the Constitution, to be added to the Constitution. And Kevin, what do we know about our electors in the Electoral College? You know, are how are they bound to the vote of each state when this is all said and done? 
Well, like a lot of things, this is a, a state by state uh, decision, right? That that states, in, in fact, we, we don't just have one presidential election. We have 50 or 51, if you, if you count the District of Columbia. Um, so each state would have uh, different different ways in which they monitor monitor these uh, these electors. Um, but recent decisions have certainly allowed states to prevent, you know, these so-called faithless electors uh, uh, electors that would uh, have, from a state like Connecticut would instead of voting for Joe Biden, which he's obviously going to has easily won the state, would vote for say Donald Trump or more likely a third party candidate. Hmm. You know, we just have a few minutes left, uh, Kevin, but, and I wanted to ask you about uh, the rhetoric, uh, the statements that uh, President Trump has made since uh, Election Day has passed, uh, calling uh, the process uh, fraudulent, uh, raising questions about the ballots that still need to be counted. And it's you're seeing uh, in certain uh, cities and areas of our country where people are, are believing that uh, people have voted even after the election. I mean, how do you talk Talk about this with your students and then the danger of this to our democracy yeah i mean that's the that's the phrase i mean it, this is dangerous to democracy i mean he's obviously very frustrated that he's going to end up losing this race um and 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 at the beginning of election night he thought he was having a very good night uh the republicans actually did quite well uh, compared to our expectations so he's upset but he shouldn't be challenging uh the results of the election without a a even a bit of evidence right even even some republicans uh which who have been quite shy uh during the trump administration uh have come out and and challenged that i i, I saw chris christie last night saying that this is uh inflammation right he's in he, he he's inflammation without information which was was Christie's phrase, meaning that he doesn't have evidence to support these claims, right? He's just making these charges. This morning, Senator Pat Toomey, Republican from Pennsylvania, said the same thing about his state, this, the focus of this attention. So I think it's very harmful, potentially even dangerous uh, for our democracy when you have this, you know, these, these, um, these statements from the President of the United States. We started our conversation talking about the fact that Joe Biden is leading in Pennsylvania. Uh, what will you be watching for today, Kevin? Yeah, just to see, you know, how how much that lead turns out to be. Uh, I, yesterday, I read that the Biden campaign expected that he would win by over 100,000 votes, uh, whether or not he can capture, you know, Georgia, whether or not his leads in Nevada and uh, Arizona uh, continue to hold up, right? It, it, it may turn out highly ironically <laughs> that he gets 306 electoral votes. That's what he's on the path to get. That happens to be the same number that Donald Trump won in 2016. And as you'll recall, he said that was a great victory to get 306 electoral votes. So it may be a repeat number. Mm. But with the legal challenges that uh, the Trump campaign uh, has put forth. I mean, how long could this be dragged out? My expectation is that unless they provide, you know, solid evidence of some type of problematic vote counting, uh, that those challenges, as we've seen already, the challenges have not been successful. The only challenge 
that was successful in Pennsylvania was that they were able to move their observers uh, from 10 feet to six feet, right? Four feet seemingly is not a, a great win, although the president said it was last night. Um, there's, there hasn't been anything to suggest uh, that the, the other than that these election workers are doing their, their you know, working very hard to get the, the vote correct uh, and trying to get it done as quickly as possible. You're hearing Kevin McMahon again. He's a professor of political science at Trinity College in Hartford. Kevin, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Happy to be here. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk about the future of the Affordable Care Act. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to hear arguments about whether the health care law is constitutional. We hear from Kaiser Health News after the break, and we'll take your questions to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Next week, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments that will determine the future of the Affordable Care Act. 20 million Americans rely on the ACA. For more on what's at stake, joining me now on Zoom is Mary Agnes Carey, Senior Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Mary Agnes, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I may have misspoken. I said Monday, but it's, it is next week that the U.S. Supreme Court will hear uh, these arguments. Yeah, Tuesday, <laughs> so Tuesday. Thank you, Mary yeah. Agnes. Uh, sure. For people who have questions about the Affordable Care Act and this lawsuit, uh, you can join our conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Mary Agnes, re- refresh our memory because it does feel like we've all been drinking from the fire hose. So much is going on, but this is an important lawsuit before the U.S. Supreme Court next week. Tell us about it. Sure. What it gets down to is whether or not a provision called the individual mandate can be taken out of the law and the law can stand alone with it or the whole law has to be taken down. And a quick background is in 2017, we might remember that uh, Republicans passed a big tax cut. As part of that tax cut, they took away the penalty for the individual mandate. That was this requirement that most of us have health insurance or pay a fine when that monetary penalty was removed, Republican attorneys general in Texas and other states that opposed the Affordable Care Act took a court challenge and said, wait a minute, if the penalty goes away, the law is no longer constitutional because that's how the Supreme Court in 2012 made the law constitutional. So if the penalty has gone, the whole law has to go down. A judge in Texas agreed. That was appealed to the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans. They ruled two to one that yes, The individual mandate is now unconstitutional, but they sent it back to the lower court to say, does the entire law really have to go down? They wanted more uh, reasoning, if you will, from the lower court in Texas. Democratic attorneys general from states that favor the Affordable Care Act, like California, said, wait a minute, we don't want the whole law to go down. We are filing suit to keep the law in place. They asked, they being the Democratic attorneys general, asked the Supreme Court, would you please rule before the election? The Supreme Court didn't do that, but they moved the arguments to November the 10th. So that's what we're going to hear next week. Hmm. So talk about how the court could rule that wouldn't disrupt the ACA or the protections for pre-existing conditions, Mary Agnes. Sure, Sure. The, the court could say, yes, the penalty, the financial penalty is gone 
for the Affordable Care Act, but the rest of the law can stand. It doesn't have to go away completely. But it could also say that the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act was based on the ability of Congress to levy a fine against people who didn't enroll in, a, in the Affordable Care Act, <coughs> pardon me, in, in that coverage. So they could allow, they, the court could allow the law to stand without the penalty for the individual mandate, or they could say, you know what, that financial penalty, penalty uh, assured its constitutionality. So if the penalty's gone, the whole law has to go down. And another ruling they could do is, um, if, if you look back at all the different filings, the Trump administration kind of late in the game and some of the judicial considerations said one option could be that the law is no longer constitutional in the states that filed suit in those Republican states, which would be really complicated if they went that way. Uh, and they could also just dismiss the entire case. The Supreme Court could say the parties involved don't have standing, the legal arguments don't have merit, the whole thing just goes away and the ACA remains in place. Mm. Uh, this time around, we have a, a new justice on the court, uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Will she be hearing uh, this case? That's the thought. Uh, I have not read or heard otherwise. She did uh, not participate in a couple of cases that were happened at the court right after she was sworn in. There were some voting cases with the presidential election, but the thought is that she will participate. Uh, she was asked a lot about the Affordable Care Act by Democrats during her confirmation hearings. And she said basically that she is not uh, hostile to the ACA, she's not hostile to any statute that Congress passes, that President Trump didn't ask her about the ACA as part of the nomination process. So she's trying to be very clear there that she has no preconceived uh, assumptions about the law. Mm. We know during the confirmation hearings, uh, there were senators that called that into question, including Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal. Uh, what do we know about uh, her previous uh, opinions that she's written uh, or co comments that she has made about the Affordable Care Act before she made it to the U.S. Supreme Court? Sure. She made some judicial analysis of, mm. we, we mentioned earlier, this ruling in 2014 by uh, concert by a 5-4 split on the court, including Judge Justice uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, that said the individual mandate could stand because of Congress's ability to tax, to levy that fine. She wrote an uh, you know, uh, uh, academic paper criticizing his interpretation of the statute, said basically he went too far. But during her hearing, she cautioned senators to not confuse statutory reasoning, which is what she used in that analysis versus a judicial decision making. And there's also two different things here at play. One is looking at whether or not Congress could tax, um, their ability to tax makes the law constitutional. That is one facet. There's also this issue of severability, right, which would be key in this decision, which would be a new argument before the court. Can the law stand without the penalty for people to get, get coverage. That financial penalty, as we know, is gone. Can the law still stand without it? That's a completely different argument before the court. Mm. And she urged senators not to confuse the two, that she has an open mind. 
You're hearing Mary Agnes Carey here on Where We Live. She's senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. As we talk about uh, next Tuesday, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments that will determine the future of the Affordable Care Act. If you have questions about this, we know it can be confusing. Uh, the number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Mary Agnes, let's get back to you know, if the court were, were to agree and say that this uh, is unconstitutional without that mandate, what does that mean in terms of is it gets kicked back to Congress that might try to replace it? And what do we know about uh, President Trump's plan that he keeps saying that he has uh, to replace the ACA? Yeah, if Congress wanted to, for example, Congress could reinstate a dollar penalty uh, for not having uh, coverage under the Affordable Care Act. And there are many analysts that say if Congress simply reinstated a small penalty, this issue of constitutionality could go away. Uh, To your point, President Trump has talked extensively about bringing out a new uh, plan to replace the Affordable Care Act, new coverage that will be better and cheaper. But as we know, we've heard that for a while and we haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. So part of the the baseline concern here is if the Affordable Care Act went away completely, there'd be many, many ripple effects. Uh, For example, there are about 20 million people that have gotten coverage under the law's Medicaid expansion or on these things called the marketplaces where people can get subsidies if they qualify for financial assistance and they can purchase coverage. But even if you don't fall into that category, millions of people are protected against an insurer discriminating against them for a pre-existing medical condition. As we know, adult children to age 26 can stay on their parents' health insurance. Um, The idea of lifetime caps, lifetime limits and annual caps and so on have gone away. Um, People on Medicare have benefited from lower drug prices. There are just sweeping impacts that would affect millions of Americans if the law went away, if it were completely thrown out. Mm -hmm. We know that states have passed their own laws to protect insurers from denying coverage. Can you talk us through, uh, you know, what these uh, programs would look like in states without the, the federal dollars to back it up, Mary Agnes? Well, that's a great point, because as you know, states have passed laws to regulate the individual market. And if the Affordable Care Act were struck down, states could could certainly at their legislatures pass laws that say no one could be discriminated against because of a pre-existing medical condition. But the Affordable Care Act has brought in so much money to states. For example, eight out of 10 beneficiaries on those exchanges get some kind of cash assistance to purchase insurance. That would go away. Uh, The Affordable Care Act has given states money to help cover uh, the increased uh, number of people that have been um, eligible now for Medicaid because income uh, levels were raised. That money would go away. And how could states, uh, in an era where many, many states have lower tax revenues, they're fighting coronavirus outbreaks, where would they find the money to replace those federal dollars? That is a major concern. And there'd be millions of people that wouldn't be able to afford or their, their coverage when you mentioned the expanded uh, population under Medicaid, Mary Agnes. Right, exactly. And that's, that's the thing. Could states step up? And, and it would depend on what the ruling would be, right? Yeah, yeah. Chances are people would continue their federal subsidies for the planned year, which can be is often January to January under the Affordable Care Act. So maybe they would have a few months of coverage. But if the entire law were thrown out, if it were completely declared unconstitutional, 
and we don't know quite yet the makeup of the Senate. We know that Democrats are going to mm-hmm. control the House, but the Senate is going to be fairly evenly divided, Democrats and Republicans, and Republicans in the Senate have shown no interest in trying to go in and make any changes to the Affordable Care Act. So that would be something, you know, certainly to watch. Uh, Mary Agnes, we mentioned uh, the 20 million uh, Americans who rely on the Affordable Care Act. You know, I can't help but think that when we're in a pandemic, uh, when we're dealing with uh, the fact that people, if they get sick, they may need uh, lengthy stays at the hospital and good care. This is really problematic to think that in a pandemic, this, these kinds of protections could be at risk. Right. Because another thing to think about right now is we are in the open enrollment season for Mm -hmm. the Affordable Care Act. That started November the 1st. So we've got people that may have lost uh, insurance on their jobs, um, coverage and so on. There are no official numbers, but some rough rough estimates we've had uh, in our reporting is about 10 million people have lost coverage. Now, two thirds of those folks have gotten it, perhaps their health insurance again through a new job or maybe they're in the Medicaid program or maybe they've signed up in the marketplace, right? And where there's still 3 million folks out there that don't have coverage. So it's not beyond reason to think they will be looking at the Affordable Care Act for enrollment. And again, to your point, with coronavirus, um, we have had, you know, real stresses on our healthcare systems, uh, lots of people flooding the system. And if uh, the infection rates, as we know, unfortunately are continuing to climb. So we wouldn't want more people uninsured during that period. And to your point about coronavirus, that will now be a pre-existing condition for millions of Americans who they may have already had a pre-existing condition anyway, but if they've even had a mild case of the coronavirus, that could impact their future ability to get insurance if pre-existing conditions aren't protected. Mm. This sounds like a big mess, Mary Agnes. I'm, I am yeah, glad that's that a you... good way to put it. <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned the open enrollment that just started. I know that Access Health Connecticut, our state's ACA marketplace, is reminding people about open enrollment um, for coverage in 2021. I'm just wondering how this this case affects the stability of the market and the insurers who participate. Well, right now, for 2021, things are looking fairly good for insurer participation in the Affordable Care Act. Roughly speaking, you've got more insurers coming into the market Uh, The price estimates, the prices of premiums, rather, are not final, but based on estimates, it looks like uh, any increases would be in the single digits, and many states may see decreases. So if we look back at the the history of the Affordable Care Act, there's been a lot of uncertainty in the Trump administration over a variety of things that insurers built into their rates back in maybe 2018 or so. We had a, a spike in a lot of rates, but when the baseline for rates was raised, when insurers said, well, you know, the federal government's no longer going to do these cost-sharing subsidies that are a different subsidy other than the premium subsidies and additional funding for, for lower-income folks. When that went away, insurers kind of built that into their baselines. And so we've seen a relative era of stability for the Affordable Care Act. And of course, insurers months ago bid to participate in 2021, not knowing what may happen with the court case. Uh, But I think that insurers, beneficiaries, doctors, uh, hospitals, all healthcare providers are so closely watching this case because they've they've changed their business practices based on the Affordable Care Act. Hospitals have had to make changes. Doctors have made changes. Um, It's with getting more people covered and, and doing it in a different way in the sense of 
the Affordable Care Act has something called the um, Essential Health Benefits Package, right? All plans under the ACA have to have things like pediatric care and maternity care and hospitalization. Some and some of some plans had that. Some plans did not, right? But um, no uh, preventive care at no out-of-pocket cost to you. That is a different, a whole different mechanism for a provider and insurer. And if the law were thrown out, that would uh, cause a lot of distress within the healthcare system itself. Healthcare is administered, so it's it sort of would reach into every element of healthcare if the Affordable Care Act were struck down. Mm. And it's unclear whether that would be the case or not. We got a Facebook uh, question from Michelle uh, who writes, you know, assuming the Trump administration is successful in repealing this act, she wanted to know, like, how would it go away, Mary Agnes? Would it wind down in 90 days or would the insurance companies be required to honor contracts currently in effect? And when would that end? I think it would depend on what the Supreme Court said for a Mm -hmm. ruling. My guess would be what you just said. They would say, we'll honor the current contracts. Um, and I don't know how they would navigate people who've signed up now to have coverage that would start January 1st. That could be fairly difficult. How much um, latitude would states have to enter in and try to mitigate any kind of effects of a ruling? But I think it would you'd have to look at what the court ruled and how much flexibility they gave. For example, you've got about 36 states who are part of the federal exchange. And then you have the remainder of states that have their own exchange like Connecticut, for example. Mm-hmm. So how would that differ in r- the ruling, if at all? I think it's highly unclear. Again, you're hearing Mary Agnes Carey, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Mary Agnes, did we cover what we needed to know before Tuesday? I think you did. You did a great job. <laughs> well, we appreciate your perspective and your coverage as senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. We'll tweet out links to, uh, at, to her articles and her colleagues at Where We Live. Mary Agnes, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, the winter blues are real. Pair that with the pandemic and having to isolate to keep us safe from COVID-19. And it's not wrong of you to wonder, what will the next few months feel like? We'll hear from Dr. Vale Wright, Senior Director for Healthcare Innovation at the American Psychological Association. And we'll take your calls and comments too. 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, how have Connecticut students and teachers adapted to the school year with hybrid schedules and online learning? On the next Where We Live, Connecticut Department of Education Commissioner Dr. Miguel Cardona joins us to answer our questions and yours. We hope you tune in Monday morning. Now, are you feeling stressed? It's after a major election, and we don't know yet who is the definitive winner. The holidays are coming up, and oh yeah, we're still in a pandemic. Joining us now with some good tips, Dr. Vale Wright is Senior Director for Healthcare Innovation at the American Psychological Association. Dr. Wright, welcome to our show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It has been a stressful week, and it's not done yet. And so I wanted you to first maybe talk a little bit about this uh, stress around the election and the constant waiting to see uh, who be- is our president. 
Yeah, in our annual Stress in America survey, we found out that um, 68% of adults reported that the 2020 presidential election was a significant source of stress, uh, which was a pretty big increase from 2016, where only about 52% of adults reported stress. And, you know, the stress is bipartisan. It was the majority of Democrats, Republicans, and those who um, said they're independent. So really, it's, it's widespread, and I think it hasn't improved um, as, you know, unlike normal years, we haven't, we didn't have a victor um, when we generally do. Um, and so I think that stress is just continuing for a lot of people. So what are, uh, what are your suggestions uh, for people who they want to pay attention because, you know, this is important uh, for our country, uh, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to be up all night and, and checking for updates on, on, your, on your phone? Yeah, it is important for us to, to be informed, um, but the reality is uh, we're going to know when we know. I mean, there's not going to be a secret about who wins this election. And so um, constantly checking your phone, refreshing your feed actually isn't going to make a result come any faster. Um, it's not going to get you the result necessarily that you're looking for. So I, I think people need to take breaks from their devices. They need to be turning the TV off. Um, they need to be doing other things that help soothe them, help build them back up. We are going to know when we know. Um, and managing your stress in between by not constantly checking is, is probably a better way of going about it. How do you know when uh, all of this stress and anxiety is taking a toll on you uh, physically? What are some symptoms people should be watching out for that maybe they could say, well, you know what, maybe I should turn that cell phone off or take a break or, or try to do something uh, that is more productive uh, than uh, sitting in front of a screen? Yeah, physical symptoms of stress and anxiety are actually really common and are typically the first things people feel. So that can look like anything from headaches to stomach problems, muscle tension, teeth grinding or, or sort of jaw tightening, um, sweating, increased heart rate. For me right now, it's a left eye twitch. Um, those are some of the physical symptoms, including um, difficulty sleeping and changes in your appetite. Mm. When we think about this past year, specifically the past uh, six to seven months, it's been a, a lot on all of us, uh, Dr. Wright. And so you add uh, the impact of the pandemic on what's happening in our country and world and the fact that we're not going to be out of this anytime soon. And so how should people be thinking about the next few months, especially with the holidays coming up? Yeah, we found in our survey that 60% of adults said that it's the cumulative effect of all these stressors all at once that are really feeling overwhelming. And part of that is because of the level of uncertainty in our country right now. And uncertainty makes it really hard for us to plan and it makes it hard for us to find it, figure out what's in our control. So that's really what our advice is, is to take active steps to identify what is it that's in your control? Um, what sorts of steps can you make um, you know, to change your, modify your behaviors, to really focus on how you're feeling and how you're thinking, um, to feel, um, to help reduce your stress and, and manage better. And um, some of those things in particular require um, just some really foundational aspects. That's eating healthy, staying active, um, getting enough sleep, and staying socially connected. And obviously right now, a lot of that might look virtual or look a little different, um, but we know that those four things when combined with a routine really set the stage for being able to manage stress better. 
You're hearing Dr. Vale Wright here on Where We Live. She's Senior Director for Healthcare Innovation at the American Psychological Association as we talk about uh, the moment that we're all in, uh, in a pandemic. We're waiting on results of a major election. Winter is approaching. It's common, uh, Dr. Wright, uh, for many of us to kind of get the winter blues where you, with the cold weather, but now we're in a pandemic. We have to stay uh, away from people sometimes uh, that we want, would maybe normally see on a daily or weekly basis, and that can be really challenging to think about. Yeah, we know from research that about 5% of the population get the winter blues or, you know, what's sort of clinically called seasonal affective disorder. I think one of the things we're concerned about this year is that with the pandemic, being able to be outside, I think, has felt like a safe haven, a respite for a lot of people. Um, We know that, you know, the disease is less, you're safer outside in terms of catching the coronavirus. And as it starts to get darker and as it starts to get colder, I think people are not going to feel that they can use the outside as much as possible. So our advice is really about planning ahead. How can you maximize your sunlight? How can you maximize your time outside? How can you think about creative and different ways to stay connected socially, even if it's not that socially distanced walk you were doing around the neighborhood like you had been this summer? We have a question for Dr. Wright. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We had our our governor uh, just say yesterday, uh, Dr. Wright, that because cases are rising here in Connecticut, that uh, gatherings should be under 10 and that Thanksgiving may look very different from years past. That's a tough pill to swallow for people who look forward to the holidays, to seeing family and friends and and, uh, realizing that that may not be possible this year. Yeah, I I do think it's important that people have appropriate expectations and the right mindset going into the holidays this year. It is going to look different because of the pandemic. But if we can approach it not as something being taken away from us, but as an opportunity to try new things, to start new traditions, I think that that really opens up possibilities for people to to think about what could I do this year that I haven't done in the past. Um, So that can look like, um, you know, using video platforms to stay connected, maybe not for the entire event of say Thanksgiving, but that part where you all say gratitude right before the meal starts. Or maybe it looks like I'm doing a new recipe that you never felt you could do because you knew somebody in your family wouldn't have approved of it. Um, So I, I think again, it's about looking at opportunities and reminding ourselves that while we don't know exactly what the future is gonna look like, it's not going to be like this forever. Um, So modeling how we can handle holidays differently, especially for our families and our children, become an incredible teaching moment for how we can be resilient as people, as families, and as a nation. Resiliency is important, but if you have someone uh, in your family or someone that you're close with that is experiencing anxiety, how how can we help them? Well, the first thing is just to be there for them. I think a lot of what um, kind of gets in our way of really um, approaching people about their emotional health is this um, fear that we have to fix it for them. And that's not often what people are looking for. People are really looking for um, someone to listen to them, to validate how they're feeling, to ensure that they're not alone, um, and then to possibly problem solve. You know, what can we do differently to manage our stress or anxiety? and that again can just look like simple coping skills or staying connected in a, in a more um, active way. Um, and at the other extreme, it can look like um, seeking out some professional help. 
Uh, we've, we've been talking about uh, mental health uh, over the last uh, few months here on our show. Um, you've mentioned the survey uh, that the American Psychological Association has done. If we take a step back and we look at mental health in America, what are uh, some points that you want to raise about making sure that we are helping people in our communities and getting them uh, the right uh, resources uh, when, when needed? Yeah, I think what um, this current situation with the pandemic and with the other stressors has really laid bare is, is the um, disparities um, that we see in this country. And in particular, that we haven't necessarily taken a public health approach to managing our mental health in the same way that we've taken a public health approach to managing our physical health. And the challenge, of course, is that the two go hand in hand, and you really can't talk about one without talking about the other. Um, and so I thought, you know, our hope at APA is certainly a, a broader dialogue around how can we not just provide professional services, and right now, obviously, that means um, telehealth, right? So mm -hmm. seeing a therapist either via video conferencing or on the phone only, but also how can we talk more about prevention? How can we have um, workplaces and schools that provide the kind of emotional support that we need in order to not, in order to weather, um, you know, such national level stressors like what we're seeing right now? You know, at the start of the segment, I reminded our listeners we're going to have our state education commissioner on Monday, and we're going to talk about how online learning is going. But when we think about talking with educators and officials in our schools about how we can do a better job providing support, not only to students and parents, I'm just curious what kind of conversations that you've been part of as we are dealing with this phenomenon around our, our country of, of children, you know, being in front of screens more often, not not having that engagement like they used to. Yeah, so it's, it, it gets pretty complicated, right? Because it's mm -hmm. not just the exposure to the screens, but it's how you're using them. So, um, you know, using screens to connect with family members, using it as a platform for education is, is really different than using screens for, say, video games um, or some sort of passive, more passive kind of approach. So um, it, it's, we encourage people to not be so worried about the screen time, but really how the screens are being used. And so we've been having conversations with organizations like the Parent Teacher Association about, again, how can we be supportive for our children? And one of the biggest things we can do is talk to them, to ask them how they're doing, to ask them if they understand what's going on, and then just talk with them in developmentally appropriate ways um, about you know, what we know, what we don't know, and why it's so critical to, to engage in um, self-care right now. And how can we model that for our kids? And one of the ways we do that, of course, is by putting down our own devices uh, when we want to spend family quality time together. Mm. And what about for parents, Dr. Wright? Uh, so again, the master's is similar. Kids pick up on our anxieties. So it is really important that parents model sort of calm self-care behavior because your kids will pick up on that. And if you can, this is a really a unique teaching moment if you want to think about it that way. It's, it's, it's certainly an unprecedented time. Um, and if you can, again, model for kids how to manage the stress, that, that's step one. I also think we need to be relying on um, our family members. We can't do everything ourselves. Um, if you're fortunate enough to have a partner, um, have a spouse, you know, tag team this approach right now so that, you know, when you feel that you're getting run down, that you've got somebody else that you can rely on um, and then come back into the fold. We've got to be taking care of ourselves because if we don't take care of ourselves, then we can't be the most effective parents, um, coworkers, uh, spouses, partners that we can be. 
I like that tag team with your spouse uh, on, on the days there when one or the other is feeling a little more spent. Uh, we just have a, a few, uh, about 30 seconds left, Dr. Wright. And so just as a as we end, uh, again, focusing on what we can look forward to in these next few months, that'll, that'll help us? Yeah, I think it will. I think that for since the beginning of the pandemic, um, you know, we had to hard pivot to work from home, e-learn, figure out how to get groceries. And we've kind of got that routine down. And now it's really about how do I get unstuck? How do I create a life worth living where I have something to look forward to where I can actually, you know, get some meaning out of this time right now instead of feeling like everything is being taken away from me. So I really encourage people to think actively about you know, what should my, what do I want my life to look like right now, even though I can't control everything outside of it. Mm. Dr. Vale Wright, again, is Senior Director for Healthcare Innovation at the American Psychological Association. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Again, Connecticut Department of Education Commissioner Dr. Miguel Cardona comes on the show Monday to answer our questions and yours. If you're a parent or an educator, we definitely want to hear from you Monday morning. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for living. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have a great weekend.